Chapter Sixteen of In Freedom's Cause. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ted Garvin. In Freedom's Cause by G. A. Henty. Chapter Sixteen: An Irish Rising. When night came on, Archie started for the west, accompanied by Ronald and two of the Irish's guides. They crossed the country without question or interference and reached the wild mountains of Donegal in safety. Archie had asked that his conductors should lead him to the abode of the principal chieftain of the district. The miserable appearance of the sparsely scattered villages through which they had passed had prepared him to find that the superiors of such a number would be in a very different position from the feudal lords of the highlands of Scotland. He was not surprised, therefore, when his attendants pointed out a small hold, such as would appertain to a small landholder on the Scottish border, as the residence of the chief. Around it were scattered a number of low huts composed of turf, roofed with reeds. From these, when the approach of strangers was reported, a number of wild-looking figures poured out, armed with weapons of the most primitive description. A shout from Archie's guides assured these people that the newcomer was not, as his appearance betokened him, a Norman knight, but a visitor from Scotland who sought a friendly interview with the chief. Insignificant as was the hold, it was evident that something like feudal discipline was kept up. Two men, armed with pikes, were stationed on the wall, while two others leant in careless fashion against the post of the open gate. On the approach of Archie, an elderly man, with a long white beard, came out to meet them. Ronald explained to him that Archie was a knight who had come as an emissary from the King of Scotland to the Irish chieftains, and desired to speak with the great Fergus of Killeen. The old man bowed deeply to Archie, and then escorted him into the house. The room which they entered occupied the whole of the ground floor of the hold, and was some thirty feet wide by forty long. As apparently trees of sufficient length to form the beams of so wide an apartment could not be obtained, the floor above was supported by two rows of roughly squared posts extending down from end to end. The walls were perfectly bare. The beams and planks of the ceiling were stained black by the smoke of a fire which burned in one corner. The floor was of clay beaten hard. A strip some ten feet wide, at the further end, was raised eighteen inches above the general level, forming a sort of daze. Here, in a carved saddle of black wood, sat the chief. Some females, evidently the ladies of his family, were seated on piles of sheepskins, and were plying their distaffs while an aged man was seated on the end of the dais with a harp of quaint form on his knee. His fingers touched the last chord as Archie entered, and he had evidently been playing while the ladies worked. Near him on the dais was a fire composed of wood embers, which were replenished from time to time with fresh glowing pieces of charcoal taken from the fire at the other end of the room, so that the occupants of the dais should not be annoyed by the smoke arising close to them. The chief was a fine-looking man about fifty years old, he was clad in a loose-fitting tunic of soft dark green cloth, confined at the waist by a broad leathern band of, with silver clasps and ornaments, and reaching to his knees. His arms were bare. On his feet he wore sandals, and a heavy sword rested against the wall near his hand. The ladies wore dresses of similar material and of somewhat similar fashion, but reaching to the feet. They wore gold armlets, and the chief's wife had a light band of gold around her head. The chief rose when Archie entered and upon the seneschal informing him of the rank and mission of his visitor, he stepped from the dais, advanced, greeted him warmly. Then he led him back to the dais, where he presented to him the ladies of his family, ordering the retainers, of whom above a score were gathered in the hall, to place two piles of sheepskins near the fire. 
On one of these he sat down, and motioned to Archie to take his place on the other, his own chair being removed to a corner. Then, through the medium of Ronald, the conversation began. Archie related to the chief the efforts which the Scotch were making to win their freedom from England, and urged in the king's name that a similar effort should be made by the Irish, as the forces of the English, being thereby divided and distracted, there might be better hope of success. The chief heard the communication in grave silence. The ladies of the family stood behind the chief with deeply interested faces, and as the narrative of the long-continued struggle which the Scots were making for freedom continued, it was clear, by their glowing cheeks and their animated faces, how deeply they sympathized in the struggle. The wife of the chief, a tall and stately lady, stood immediately behind him with her two daughters, girls of some seventeen or eighteen years of age, beside her. As Ronald was translating his words, Archie glanced frequently at the, at the group, and thought he had never seen one fairer or more picturesque. There was a striking likeness between mother and daughters, but the expression of staid dignity in the one was in the others replaced by a bright expression of youth and happiness. Their beauty was of a kind new to Archie. Their dark, glossy hair was kept smoothly in place by the fillet of gold in the mother's case, and by purple ribbons in that of the daughters. Their eyebrows and long eyelashes were black, but their eyes were gray, and as light as those to which Archie was accustomed under the fair tresses of his countrywoman. The thing that struck him most in the faces of the girls was their mobility, the expression changing as it seemed in an instant from grave to gay, flushing at one moment with interest at the tale of the deeds of valor, paling at the next at the recital of cruel oppression and wrong. When Archie had finished his narrative, he presented to the chief a beautifully wrought chain of gold as a token from the King of Scotland. The chief was silent for some time after the interpreter concluded Archie's narrative. Then he said, Sir Knight, it almost seems to me that if I had been listening to the tale of the wrongs of Ireland, save that it appears that the mastery of the English here has been more firmly established than with you, this may be from the nature of the country. Our hills are, for the most part, bare, while yours, you say, are covered with forest. Thus the Normans could more easily, when they had once gained the upper hand, crush out the last vestiges of opposition than they could with you. As I judge from what you say, the English in Scotland hold all the fortresses, and when the people rise, they remain sheltered in them until assistance comes from England. With us it is different. First they conquer all the country, then from a wide tract, a third perhaps of the island, they drive out the whole of the people, and establish themselves firmly there, proportioning the land among the soldiery and repeopling the country with an English race. Outside this district the Irish chieftains, like myself, retain something of independence, we pay a tribute, and are in the position of feudatories, being bound to furnish so many men for the King of England's wars if called upon to do so. The English seldom come beyond their pale so long as the tribute is paid, and the yoke, therefore, weighs not so heavy upon us. But were we to rise, the English army would pour out from its pale and carry sword and fire through the country. We, like you, have been without one who would unite us against the common enemy. Our great chiefs have, for the most part, accepted English titles, and since their power over the minor chiefs is extended, rather than decreased by the changed circumstances, they are well content. For they rule now over their districts, not only as Irish chieftains, but as Irish lieutenants. You have seen, as you journeyed here, how sparse is the population of our hills, and how slight would be the opposition which we could offer, did the Earl of Ulster sweep down upon us with trained English soldiers. Were there a chance of success, Fergus of Killeen would gladly draw the sword again, but I will not bring ruin upon my family and people by engaging in a hopeless enterprise. Did I raise my standard, all Donegal would take up arms, but Donegal alone is powerless against England. 
I know my people. They are ready for the fray. They would rush to battle and perish in thousands to win victory, but one great defeat would crush them. The story of the long fight which your Wallace, with a small following, made against the power of England, will never be told of an Irish leader. We have bravery and reckless courage, but we have none of the stubborn obstinacy of your Scottish folk. Were the flag raised, the people would flock to it, and would fight desperately, but if they lost, there would be utter and complete collapse. The fortitude to support repeated defeats, to struggle on when the prospect seems darkest, does not belong to my people. It is for this reason that I have no hope that Ireland will ever regain its independence. She may struggle against the yoke, she may blaze out again and again in bloody risings. Our sons may die in tens of thousands for her, but never, I believe, as long as the men of the two countries remain what they are, will Ireland recover her independence, for in the long run, English perseverance and determination will overcome the fitful courage of the Irish. I agree that I should say it. I mourn that I feel it my duty to repress rather than to encourage the eager desire of my people to draw the sword and strike for freedom, but such is my conviction. But understand, Sir Knight, that whatever I may think, I shall not be backward in doing my part. If Ireland again rises, should the other native chieftains determine to make one more effort to drive the English across the channel, be sure that Fergus of Killeen and the men of Donegal will be, at, will be in the front of the battle. No heart beats more warmly for freedom than mine, and did I stand alone I would take to the bogs and join those who shelter there, defying the might of England. But I have my people to think of. I have seen how the English turn a land to desolation as they sweep across it, and I will not bring fire and sword into these mountain valleys unless all Ireland is banded in a common effort. You have seen Scotland wasted from sea to sea, her cities burned, her people slain by thousands, her dales and valleys wasted, and can you tell me that after these years of struggle you have gained any such advantage as one as would warrant your advising me to rise against England? Archie was silent, thinking over the struggle in which he had taken part for so many years and remembering the woes that it brought on Scotland, and that after fighting so long, Bruce and the handful of fugitives at Rathlin were the sole survivors of the patriotic party, he could not but acknowledge at heart the justice of the chief's words. His sole hope for Scotland now rested in the perseverance and personal valor of the king, and the stubborn character of the people, which he felt assured would lead them to rise again and again, in spite of disaster and defeat, until freedom was won. The Irish possessed no Bruce, their country was less defendable than Scotland, and if, as Fergus said, they had none of that indomitable perseverance which enabled the Scottish people again and again to rise against the yoke, what hope could there be of final success? How could he be justified in urging upon the chieftain a step which would bring fire and sword into these quiet valleys? For some time, therefore, after Ronald had translated the chief's speech, he remained silent. "'I will not urge you further, sir,' he said, "'for you are surely the best judge of what is good for your people.' and I have seen such ruin and desolation in Scotland, so many scores of ruined towns and villages, so many thousands of leveled homesteads, that I will not say a single word to urge you to alter your resolution. It is enough for me that you have said that if Ireland rises you will also draw the sword. I must carry out my instructions, and hence shall travel south and visit other chiefs. They may view matters differently, and may see that what Ireland cannot do alone she may do in conjunction with Scotland." so be it fergus said believe me if you raise a flame through the west the north will not hang back and now i trust that you will remain here for a few days as my guest all that i have is yours and my wife and daughters will do their best to make the time pass pleasantly for you archie remained three days at the chief's hold where the primitive life interested him greatly a lavish hospitality was exercised 
Several sheep were killed and roasted each day, and all comers were free to join the repast. The chief's more immediate retainers, some twenty in number, ate, lived, and slept in the great hall, while tables were spread outside, at which all who came sat down without question. The upper rooms of the hold were occupied by the chief, the ladies of his family, and the female domestics. Here they retired when they felt disposed, but their meals were served on the days. In the evening the harper played and sang legends of deeds of bravery in the day of Ireland's independence, and as Ronald translated the songs to him, Archie could not but conclude privately that civil war, rapine, strife, and massacre must have characterized the country in those days. At the conclusion of his stay, Fergus appointed two of the retainers to accompany Archie south, and to give assurance to the various wild people through whom he might pass, that Archie's mission was a friendly one to Ireland, and that he was an honored friend and guest of the chief of Killeen. On his arrival in Mayo, Archie found matters more favorable to his mission. An insurrection had already broken out, headed by some of the local chieftains, originating in a broil between the English soldiers of a garrison and the natives. The garrison had been surprised and massacred, and the wild Irish were flocking to arms. By the chieftains here, Archie, on explaining his mission, was warmly welcomed. As they were already in arms, no urging on his part was needed, and they dispatched messengers throughout the country, saying that an emissary from Scotland had arrived, and calling upon all to rise and to join with the Scotch in shaking off the yoke of England. Archie had therefore to travel no farther, and decided that he could best carry out his mission by assisting to organize and lead the Irish forces. These he speedily discovered were beyond all comparison inferior, both in arms, in discipline, and in methods of fighting, to the Scots. For a dashing foray they would be excellent. Hardy, agile, and full of impetuosity, they would bear down all resistance instantly, were that resistance not too strong, but against stubborn and well-armed troops they would break like a wave against a rock. Archie saw that with such troops anything like regular war would be impossible, and that the struggle must be one of constant surprises, attacks, and forays, and that they could succeed only by wearing out and not by defeating the enemy. With such tactics as these they might by long perseverance succeed, but this was just what Fergus had warned him they would not practice, and that their courage was rather of a kind which would lead them to dash desperately against the line of leveled spears, rather than continue a long and weary struggle under apparently hopeless circumstances. The chiefs, hearing from Archie that he had acted as one of Wallace's lieutenants in battles, where the English had been heavily defeated, willingly consented that he should endeavor to instill the tactics by which those battles had been won into their own followers. But when they found that he proposed that the men should remain stationary to withstand the English charges, they shook their heads. That will never do for our people, they said. They must attack sword in hand. They will rush fearlessly down against any odds, but you will never get them more steadily to withstand a charge of men-at-arms. Archie, however, persuaded them to allow him to organize a band of two hundred men under his immediate orders. These were armed with long pikes, and were to form a sort of reserve, in order that if the wild charge of the main body failed in its object, these could cover a retreat, or serve as a nucleus around which they could rally. The army swelled rapidly. Every day fresh chiefs arrived with scores of wild tribesmen. Presently the news came that an English force was advancing from the pale against them. A council was held at which Archie was present. Very strongly he urged his views upon the chieftains, namely that they should altogether decline a pitched battle, but that, divided into numerous parties, they should enter the pale, destroying weak garrisons and ravishing the country, trying to wear out the English by constant skirmishes and night attacks, but refusing always to allow themselves to be tempted into an engagement. 
the english cannot be everywhere at once he urged let them hold only the ground on which their feet stand as they advance or retire close ever in on their rear drive off their cattle and destroy their crops and granaries in the pale force them to live wholly in their walled towns and as you gain in strength capture these one by one as we did in scotland so and so only can you hope for ultimate success his advice was received with a silence which he at once saw betokened disapproval one after another of the irish chieftains rose and declared that such a war could not be sustained our retainers they said are ready to fight but after fighting they will want to return to their homes besides we are fifteen thousand strong and the english men-at-arms matching against us are but eight hundred it would be shameful and cowardly to avoid a battle and were we willing to do so our followers would not obey us let us first destroy this body of english then we shall be joined by others and can soon march straight upon dublin archie saw that it was hopeless to persevere and set out the following day with the wild rabble for they could not be termed an army to meet the english the leaders yielded so far to his advice as to take up a position where they could fight with the best chance of success the spot lay between a swamp extending a vast distance and a river and they were thus open only to an attack in front and could if defeated take refuge in the bog where horsemen could not follow them on the following morning the english were seen approaching in addition to the eight hundred men-at-arms were one thousand lightly equipped footmen for experience had taught the english commanders that in such a country lightly armed men were necessary to operate where the wide extending morasses prevented the employment of cavalry the english advanced in solid array three hundred archers led the way these were followed by seven hundred spearmen and the men-at-arms brought up the rear the irish were formed in disordered masses each under its own chieftain the english archers commenced the fight with a shower of arrows scarcely had these begun to fall when the irish with a tremendous yell rushed forward to the assault the english archers were swept like chaff before them with reckless bravery they threw themselves next upon the spearmen the solid array was broken by the onslaught and in a moment both parties were mixed up in wild confusion the sight was too much for archie's band to view unmoved and these in spite of his shouts left their ground and rushed at full speed after their companions and threw themselves into the fight archie was mounted having been presented with a horse by one of the chiefs and he now although hopeless of the final result rode forward just as he joined the confused and struggling mass the english men-at-arms burst down upon them as a torrent would cleave its way through a mass of loose sand so the english men-at-arms burst through the mass of irish trampling and cutting down all on their path not unharmed however for the irish fought desperately with axe and knife hewing at the men-at-arms stabbing at the horses and even trying by sheer strength to throw the riders to the ground after passing through the mass the men-at-arms turned and again burst down upon them it was a repetition of the first charge the irish fought desperately but it was each for himself there was neither order nor cohesion and each man strove only to kill a foe before himself being slain archie and the chiefs with a few mounted men among the retainers strove in vain to stem the torrent under the orders of their leaders the english kept in a compact mass and the weight of the horses and armor bore down all opposition four times did the men-at-arms burst through the struggling mass of irish as they formed a charge the fifth time the latter lost heart and as if acting under simultaneous influence they turned and fled the english horse burst down on the rear of the mass of fugitives hewing them down in hundreds those nearest to the river dashed in and numbers were drowned in striving to cross it the main body however made for the swamp and though in the crush many sank in and perished miserably here the great majority leaping lightly from tuft to tuft gained the heart of the morass the pursuing horse reining up on its edge 
Ronald had kept near Archie in the fight, and when all was lost, ran along by the side of his horse, holding fast to the stirrup leather. The horsemen still pressed along between the river and the morass, and Archie, following the example of several of the chiefs, alighted from his saddle, and with his companion entered the swamp. It was with the greatest difficulty that he made his way across it, and his lightly armed companion did him good service in assisting several times to drag him from the treacherous mire when he began to sink in it. At last they reached firmer ground in the heart of the swamp, and here some five thousand or six thousand fugitives were gathered. At least four thousand had fallen on the field. Many had escaped across the river, although numbers had lost their lives in the attempt. Others scattered and fled in various directions. A few of the chiefs were gathered in council when Archie arrived. They agreed that all was lost, and there was nothing to do but scatter to their homes. Archie took no part in the discussion. That day's experience had convinced him that nothing like a permanent and determined insurrection was possible, and only by such a movement could the Scottish cause be aided by forcing the English to send reinforcements across St. George's Channel. After seeing the slaughter which had taken place, he was rejoiced at heart that the rising had commenced before he joined it, and was in no way the result of his mission, but was one of the sporadic insurrections which frequently broke out in Ireland, only to be instantly and sternly repressed. "'We have failed, Sir Knight,' one of the chiefs said to him, "'but it was not for want of courage on the part of our men.' "'No, indeed,' Archie replied through his interpreter. "'Never did I see men fight more fiercely, "'but without discipline and organization victory "'is well nigh impossible for lightly armed footmen "'against heavy mail-clad cavalry.' "'The tactics you advised were doubtless good,' the chief said. "'I see their wisdom, but they were well nigh impossible "'to carry out with such following as ours. "'They are ever impatient for the fray, "'but quickly wearied by effort, ready to die,' but not to wait. To them prudence means cowardice, and their only idea of fighting is to rush full of the foe. See how they broke the English spearmen? It was right well done, Archie replied, and some day, when well trained and disciplined, Irish soldiers will be second to none in the world, but unless they will submit to training and discipline, they can never hope to conquer the English. And now, Sir Knight, what do you propose doing? the chief said. I shall make my way north, Archie replied, and shall rejoin my king at Rathlin. I will send two of my men with you. They know every foot of the morasses of this neighborhood, and when they get beyond the point familiar to them, will procure you two others to take their places. It will need all your prudence and courage to get through, for the English men-at-arms will be scouring the country in groups of four, hunting all those they come across like wolves. See, already, and he pointed to the horizon, they are scattering around the edge of the morass to enclose us here, but it is many miles round, and before tomorrow is gone not a man will be left here. When darkness fell, Archie, accompanied by Ronald and his guides, set out on his journey. Alone he could never have found his way through the swamps, but even in the darkness his guides moved along quickly, following tracks known to them with the instinct of hounds. Archie kept close on their heels, as a step only a few inches from the track might plunge him into a deep morass, in which in a few seconds he would sink out of sight. On nearing the edge of the bog, the guides slackened their pace. Motioning to Archie to remain where he was, they crept forward noiselessly into the darkness. Not far off he could hear the calls of the English horsemen. The sounds were repeated again and again until they died away in the distance, showing that a cordon had been drawn around the morass so as to enclose the fugitives from the battle of the previous day. In a quarter of an hour the guides returned as noiselessly as they had departed, and Archie continued the march at their heels. Even greater caution than before was now necessary in walking, for the English, before darkness had set in, had narrowly examined the edge of the morass, and had placed three or four men wherever they could discover the slightest signs of a track. Thus Archie's guides were obliged to leave the path by which they had previously travelled. 
their progress was slow now the party only moving for a few yards at a time and then halting while the guides searched for ground solid enough to carry their weight at last archie felt the ground grow firmer under his foot and a reconnaissance by the guides having shown them that none of the english were stationed opposite to them they left the morass and noiselessly made their way across the country until far beyond the english line all night they walked and at daybreak entered another swamp and lay down for the day in the long coarse grass growing on a piece of firm ground deep in its recesses in the evening one of the guides stole out and returned with a native of the neighborhood who undertook to show archie the way on his further journey ten days or rather nights of steady journeying brought archie again to the rocky shore where he had landed throughout he had found faithful guides whom he had rewarded by giving as was often the custom of the time in lieu of money a link or two of one of his gold chains he and ronald again took refuge in the cave where they had passed the first night of their landing it was untenanted now here they abode for a fortnight ronald going up every two or three days to purchase provisions at the scattered cottages on saturday night they lit a great fire just inside the mouth of the cave so that while the flames could be seen far out at sea the light would be unobserved by the garrison of dunluce or any straggler on the cliff above it had been arranged with duncan that every saturday night weather permitting he should sail across and look for a signal fire the first saturday night was wild and stormy and although they lit the fire they had but slight idea that duncan would put out the following week however the night was calm and bright and after piling up the fire high they proceeded to the causeway and two hours later saw to their joy a boat approaching in a few minutes they were on board, and by the following morning reached Rathlin. The king and his companions welcomed Archie's return warmly, although the report which he made showed that there was no hope of obtaining any serious diversion of the English attack by a permanent rising in Ireland, and the king, on hearing Archie's account of all that had passed, assured him that he felt that, although he had failed, no one, under the circumstances, could have done otherwise. End of chapter 16